This is John DeFalbe at John Sandoz in London. Many of you will already know that one of the great book events of the season is the publication of the first volume of the new edition of the Diaries of Chips Channon. They have been edited by the distinguished historian Simon Heffer, and it gives me great pleasure to bring you this podcast in which he takes the trouble to discuss the diaries with Tim Bouvery. Tim is the author of The Brilliant Appeasing Hitler, which came out in 2019, and he was kind enough to give a talk about his book at the shop at the time. Without further ado, I shall hand over to them now. Simon Heffer, it's a great pleasure to speak to you um, over Zoom uh, to talk about the first volume of the complete Henry Chips Channon Diaries, 1918 to 1938, a major literary event. Before we get into the substance of the diaries, could you perhaps give a very brief uh, snapshot of who this man, Chips Channon, was? Well, thank you, Tim. It's a great pleasure to speak to you and to uh, John Sanders. Um, uh, adherence. Um, Chips was a Chicagoan. He was born in Chicago in 1897. His family were on both sides of British descent uh, from, uh, from Devon, uh, in his father's case. Uh, and in his diaries, he goes down to Devon to uh, see the, the ancestral cottages. But um, they went to America in the 18th century and by the time Chips is born at the end of the 19th century, his family are a, a quite well-to-do uh, business family. And his father runs a shipping business uh, on the Great Lakes and uh, makes quite a lot of money out of it and makes enough money, certainly for his mother, to become uh, quite seriously involved in philanthropic acts, um, one of which is to found a library in Paris, um, which she does with the help of Proust, with whom she corresponds. And this means that when America enters the Great War in 1917, and Chips is 20 and um, wants to do something, uh, he enlists as a volunteer in the American Red Cross and they train him and they send him off to Paris at the end of 1917, um, where I think largely because of his social skills, he helps run uh, the office of the Red Cross in Paris and um, uh, is very good at liaising with people who might help them out charitably. Through his mother's contacts, he befriends or is befriended by large numbers of the, uh, uh, the, the quality in, uh, in the Faubourg in Paris. Um, and so he's constantly having lunches with duchesses and countesses and viscountesses, uh, and even the odd princess. And indeed, he meets Proust at one of these dinner parties um, in 1918 and uh, meets him on other occasions, we're told later on in the diaries, which he hasn't recorded. Um, and Jean Cocteau and um, uh, various other luminaries of that scene. And indeed, the first year of the diaries covering 1918 is really chips in Marcel Proust's Paris, but he he realizes by the time he is he is leaving Paris at the end of 1918 that he doesn't like America and doesn't really want to go back there. He does go back there in 1919, but then comes back and does a two-year degree at Christchurch, Oxford. And uh, we don't sadly have diaries for his Oxford years because they would be, I think, highly revelatory. Uh, he's always hinting at things that went on, not least sexually, at Oxford um, in his later diaries. But from 1919 to 1922, there are no diaries. And they resume in 1923 when he's 
He's been at Oxford. He's met a lot of very smart people. He's got his way into, into British high society, not least through his friendship with the stepchildren of Lord Curzon. Um, and in the early 20s, it's more or less Curzon who teaches Chips how to be an English gentleman, having been had the misfortune to be born in America. And um, there's a very touching description of Lord Curzon's death in the funeral in 1925, um, where you just see how much he mattered to Chips and um, what an enormous influence he seems to have had over him. And Chips then uh, goes on to, to try and make his way further in English society. He doesn't seem to have a job. Uh, he's kept by his father. He's very ungrateful to his parents. When he's a young man, he's not a, he's not a pleasant young man by any stretch of the imagination. And he admits this. One of the great things about these diaries is that Chips is always referring to his own shortcomings and uh, his bad behaviour towards his family in particular uh, and, uh, and, and how he sponges off them. But by the 1930s, his life has changed. He uh, meets and marries one of the daughters of Lord Ivor, the Guinness uh, magnate, uh, who's one of the richest men in Britain. And uh, the Ivers are immensely generous to Chips. Not only do they set him and their daughter up in a very fine house in Belgrave Square, uh, and also buy him a, a nice little country pile in Essex. Uh, but Lady Ivor has succeeded her husband in 1927, as the MP for South End when he uh, inherited his earldom. And she's had enough of it after eight years. And she suggests to Chips that he might like to become the MP for South End. So the day before Chips gets married in 1933, he uh, becomes a naturalised British subject. And so he's able to sit as an MP and is elected at the 1935 election. And uh, largely through his wife's money and his fanatical desire to be friends with people, uh, he becomes quite quickly uh, not a, a great heavyweight politician, but a prominent social figure in the Conservative Party. And in 1938, Rab Butler, who then is answering in the House of Commons for the Foreign Office, chooses him as his PPS. And when this volume of the diaries ends, which is on the day that Chamberlain flies back from Munich, um, Chips has got a ringside seat in the Foreign Office. Um, but bef before that, we, we see the benefits of his ringside seat at the abdication. He's very close to Wallace Simpson and to Edward VIII, and uh, that all comes out. And so I mean, the, the great uh, interest of these diaries is those two seminal events of the 1930s, the abdication and appeasement. Uh, you've got Chips, um, this American from Chicago, who has by uh, time and chance become a Tory MP. Um, watching both events extremely closely and with a great deal of, of inside information. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, life he had, um, if, as you say, um, for a lot of his life, he wasn't enormously busy professionally. Uh, what uh, A lot of people, Simon, will know the Chips Channon Diaries as appeared in 1967, edited by Roberts Rhodes James. But this was, uh, we knew it wasn't the whole diaries, but... I don't think ever, anyone knew quite how vast the manuscript is. Can you talk a bit about um, the size of the task and how much bigger this uh, project is than what has been published thus far? Well, Robert's edition um, 
came out, in, as you say, in 1967. It wasn't actually properly edited by Robert. And I knew Robert really well. I was very fond of him. Uh, but he was never allowed to see the original manuscript. Um, that was... Uh, <laughs> what, Robert, what Robert had to work from was a typescript, heavily abridged and redacted, made from the original diaries by Chipsy's partner, Peter Coates. Um, I think I'm right in saying that Coates was left the diaries as a sort of pension by Chips. He wanted, um, he wanted Coates to have a little bit of, um, of money from his estate. And so Coates took over the whole diaries project. But Chips and Coates had a homosexual relationship that lasted from 1939 until Chips's death in 1958. And Chips not only writes candidly about what they got up to, he writes very candidly about what a lot of their friends got up to. Of course, until 1967, it was against the law uh, to be a practicing homosexual. And uh, so all of that came out. Uh, there's no suggestion in Rose James that anything like that was going on um, to uh, you know, protect the not-so-innocent. Um, also, Coates rewrote bits of history. The Chips was very anti-Winston Churchill and very pro-Neville Chamberlain. And uh, a lot of his abuse of Churchill was cut out of the first volume. He really doesn't like Churchill. Not least because he doesn't, he doesn't like Randolph Churchill very much, Churchill's son. Um, uh, but he regards Churchill as a warmonger and a dangerous maniac. And although there's, there are hints of that in Rose James, they're never quite so explicit as, as in this. Also, Chips in the 1930s was a little bit too keen on Hitler. He wasn't a Nazi, and he certainly wasn't anti-Semitic uh, in, that, in that way that um, Hitler was, and that he just wanted to murder every Jew he could get his hands on. Um, Chips was rather snobbish about the Jews and regarded them as being a bit below the salt, and he's quite rude about them sometimes. And he's part of that, um, he's part of that tradition of upper-middle-class anti-Semitism that was rife in British society before the Second World War. And that was all edited out, of course, because it reflects very badly on chips indeed. Um, so um, we start off with a, a manuscript of getting on for two million words, of which Rhodes James published probably 200,000. Um, so I had to go and read the rest of it and see what was worth putting in. Now, quite often, Coates, and all Red James rewrote things that Chips said. And everything you read in uh, my edition is what Chips wrote. Uh, I have tried to keep everything in that is of historic significance and everything that shows the arc or the development of Chips's character and the characters of those to whom he was close and about whom he writes regularly. Uh, and because of the generosity of my publisher, Hutchinson, um, we've been able to put in about one and a quarter million of the two million or so words. Uh, and that's, I'm afraid there's about another 275,000 words of footnotes because nobody knows who a lot of these people were anymore. And so when this volume is just over a thousand pages, the other two volumes are going to be slightly larger. I think they're going to be about 1,100 pages each. So there's going to be, um, yeah, about um, three, three and a half thousand pages in the end of, of material uh, when, it's, when it's all published and printed. So I just had to work out then what to cut. And 
where I was lucky was that Chips almost always gives a platform for his lunch and dinner parties. And he has lunch or dinner parties sometimes you know, twice a day. Um, and the platform take up an enormous amount of room in the original manuscript. And uh, I have, except on one or two very special occasions, I've removed the platform. And he does repeat himself about people. He'll make the same jokes about people days on end, and so they don't need to go in. Or he'll just have days where he says, I didn't do very much today. It was all pretty tedious. So I thought, well, no need to inflict that on the week. So I took it out. Um, I mean, I, I believe, uh, it's not my place to, to d- determine this, but I believe that the trust, the Channel Estate, are going to deposit these diaries in an archive. Um, I'm not quite sure where that's being discussed at the moment. Um, and one day, I hope before too long, people will be able to go and read the diaries for themselves. And I hope that they'll feel that I cut nothing out that was important or significant or interesting. You mentioned the um, uh, Chips' homosexuality or bisexuality, um, a lot of which uh, was known but not mentioned in the 1967 diaries uh, for obvious reasons. you don't mention um, this explicitly in your introduction, but it becomes clear that he's very attracted by certain men and is indeed in love with certain of his best friends very early in the 1920s. Was that, um, was that deliberate in some way? You, do, do, or or is, is this uh, something that you're going to expand upon in the next uh, volume when you deal with the breakdown of Chips's marriage? Yes, I felt the place for that was in volume two and in volume three. Um, Chips never writes explicitly about homosexual um, acts uh, in volume one. Uh, In fact, when his marriage is breaking down and his wife refuses to sleep with him in 1937 or 38, um, he goes off and finds a female prostitute in Shepherd Market um, to entertain himself with, which I imagine is not the activity that a predominantly homosexual man would have engaged in at the time, if that's the feelings that he had. Um, and so I got the impression in these, in this volume, that although, as you correctly say, there are men to whom he is emotionally very close, uh, and he has some degree of almost physical intimacy with them, um, whether he actually has sexual intercourse with any of these men, I couldn't tell. And as an old-fashioned historian, I thought, well, if there's no evidence, I'm not going to start speculating about it. But it becomes quite clear in volume two, very early on in volume two, when he's, he meets Peter Coates, who, as I say, becomes his partner for the rest of his life, that um, there has been some sort of psychological change in Chips. Um, it may well be, I'm not a psychologist, and as you say, he was always bisexual and then became predominantly homosexual later in life. Although you know, in volume three, in about 1947, he's very attracted to a young American woman and thinks of marrying her. Uh, and rules it up from, as I remember it, not because he feels his wrong sexual orientation, but rules it out because um, he's so much older than her. He's about 20 years older and thinks it wouldn't work. But um, certainly in my introduction to volume two, which I've just written, volume two is coming out in September, um, I made it absolutely clear that this change of, sexual awareness or sexual orientation has become very profound in him. Um, But again, it's not really until volume three, because the war intervenes, that he really gets the chance to act on it. 
Uh, so it's quite a long evolutionary process. And um, I, I felt it would jump the gun a bit uh, and would cloud the issue of what volume one is really about, to start talking about his homosexual inclinations or behavior. Um, I mean, you will remember that he becomes friends with a Tory MP called Jim Thomas in volume one, and is often going around there at two o'clock in the morning and describing sitting there having long chats with him and drinks with him. And it does seem to be more than a normal sort of chap-on-chap friendship. But again, he never appears to do anything with him. Now, this is not how things operate in volumes two and volume three, I can assure you. And there's abundant evidence of um, his affection for men and love for men and sexual activity with men. And so, yeah, I didn't put it in volume one in the introduction, but it will be there in volume two where I think it belongs. Mm. Yes, you you mentioned Jim Thomas, which appears uh, who appears towards the end of the nineteen thirties, a, a conservative MP and a parliamentary private secretary or former parliamentary private secretary to Anthony Eden. Um, yeah, it seems that uh, I mean my reading between the lines was, uh, as you say, the, this is an entirely illegal activity, and. Uh, there, it it would it would not be something that uh, Chips would have wanted to expand on in any great detail. But by by the um, later 1930s, the discussions of long chats at, with uh, Jim Thomas and and also with Harold Balfour, who would be, became later uh, Under Secretary of State for Air, seem to be yeah. chatting seems to be become a euphemism. But as you say, nothing yeah. nothing there's nothing. Uh, Concrete. Uh, uh, well, Jim Thomas, who it's, I don't have to tell you this, it's important that readers don't confuse him with uh, the trade union leader, Jim Thomas, who became a cabinet minister in Ramsey McDonald's government and who had to resign in 1936 over a budget leak. Um, uh, they had the same name, but they weren't the same man. This Jim Thomas was um, homosexual. He never married um, and he had a pretty well documented um, uh, homosexual life. Um, Harold Balfour certainly did. Harold Balfour was very interested in the ladies. Um, and it may well be that Chips had a huge crush on him, but never actually did anything about it. I suspect he knew that Balfour was not that way inclined and it would end their friendship if, uh, if he made such a, uh, an overture towards him. But um, the, Chips's marriage is followed, as I say, very shortly afterwards by his going into Parliament. And it's an old, old story that um, uh, many men who don't have a mistress and aren't homosexual uh, decide that politics is such, of such importance to them. It absorbs their lives and their marriages go wrong. And what I'm not clear about, and because Chips isn't clear about it, I don't think, is whether the disintegration of his marriage, which takes place in the last half of this book, um, is because he is so absorbed in the game of politics and particularly when he becomes Rab's private secretary, or whether his wife, who was 12 years younger than him, very simply wasn't ready to get married and wasn't ready to marry him. And I think she got married, she had a child, which she didn't enjoy. She would never, never, it seems, until Paul was quite grown up, close to Paul Chan and their son. Um, and Paul it makes it quite clear in the later diaries uh, to his father that he doesn't like his mother and doesn't like going to stay with his mother um, when, they're, when they're separated. But um, it, it, it does seem that she 
made a big misjudgment in the man that she married because the marriage unpits so quickly and she's off with other men um, and finds finds it very easy uh, to to attract other men and um, they certainly take a shine to her. Was there anything that shocked you or greatly surprised you in when you saw, I mean, th these are people have coveted <coughs> the idea of seeing the original complete diaries almost since the 1967 edition came out and I think lots of historians must have knocked on Paul Channon's door and asked to do the job that you've uh, been tasked with. You're the first person outside the family or outside the family circle of lawyers and trustees to read it. What, what um, uh, leapt out at you from this, from this volume one that's in the... I suppose what really leapt out at me was no one had ever read anything before 1934. Rose Jones starts in 1934, I started in 1918. Um, was just how long it takes Chips to grow up. Um, and even when he's got married, which many of us found <laughs> to be a, a significant moment in growing up, um, he, I think because he doesn't have a proper job and he's largely living off his father and his father-in-law, and he, has a, he doesn't have that sense of responsibility that most men have by the time they're in their 30s. I was quite shocked by that. I, did, I didn't dislike Chips. In fact, by the end of the process, when I stopped, when I finished editing, which was um, about six months ago, when I finished volume three, um, I rather missed him. Um, I think I'd have enjoyed his company. I think I'd have enjoyed going and having dinner with him occasionally. He was an enormously generous man to his friends. He was wrong about a lot of things. And he had a rather tiresome snobbery. And it's in those early years of the diaries, I mean, really up until probably the end of this volume, that his snobbery can be rather overpowering. And you just want to give him a smack and say, look, for God's sake, pull yourself together. Don't be so bloody silly. <laughs> but unfortunately, for a long time, he is bloody silly. And it's all really out of the insecurity of having been an American who got into English high society and wanted to do everything he possibly could to conform. Now, he had certain advantages. He was good looking. He was always in demand as a spare man. He's also got American friends in London who have been in the same position as him, trying to make their way into society. People like Lady Cunard and Mrs. Corrigan, who doesn't live in London, but he's in London quite a lot of the time, widow of a very rich American industrialist. And of course, Lady Curzon, uh, the second Lady Curzon, who was an American um, woman, widow of a, an Irish South American zillionaire. Uh, um, and these three American women do a lot for chips. Um, they, they introduce him to people, they have him to their parties, they look after him. Um, but he's always conscious that he's not English. He's not from an aristocratic background. There's one point in the diary where he says, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I just had pots of money and a peerage? Um, that's all he wants. He's got, his demands in life are very simple. <laughs> and uh, he feels rather, um, rather out of it that he doesn't have a pot of money and a peerage. He gets the pot of money by marrying into the aristocracy and he vicariously gets the peerage. But he's... Um, I was shocked by how much status mattered to him. Uh, but I suppose he had no other way of proving himself. He didn't have a great career. Uh, and he had a pretty, you know, successful career as a backbench MP. He never got beyond being a PPS. 
And he was a good constituency MP, I think. We know this will become clear in the later volumes where he's assiduously going out to South End and doing things in a way that I think a lot of MPs of that generation just wouldn't have bothered to do. Um, and I think now, in the absence of a family, because he's left his family behind in America, uh, and you know, he gets married and then his wife starts running off with other men and he's devoted to their baby son and that the, the, becomes the centre of his life. He's quite a lonely and insecure person and I think it's only when he's confronted in his early 40s with his own loneliness and his own insecurity and the barrenness of, of this rather glamorous life that he does grow up but my god it takes him a long time and Anybody who expects to read this first volume and find great evidence of what we might call maturity um, won't find it. They'll find it in the last two. But, you know, this is the fascinating thing about doing a series of these diaries. You see someone's character develop. And he is incredibly candid about his own feelings and about what he wants and what he doesn't want. And what redeems him, what makes it possible, what made it possible for me to do this job, which I was one of those who coveted it, you're quite right. Uh, but what made it possible for me to do this job and what I think will make it possible for people to read the diaries is that he does okay to sit down and say, how ghastly am I? How dreadful am I? How shallow am I? Uh, and you are aware that he is aware of his limitations, but that doesn't stop them at times being rather shocking. Taking the... Um biography out of it for a second because it, 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 if it wasn't for his diaries um, I don't think we would have ever probably heard of Chips as historians there are many more important uh, figures both in certainly in politics and even in society so I agree as 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 would be um, uh, sofa psychologists or as people interested in other people, novelists, whatever, there is a fascination about chips and about a person who writes so candidly about themselves. But the historical value of these diaries is really is a, a great uh, a, a chronicler of high society in the 1920s and 30s. Could you, could you talk a bit about uh, Chips's um, abilities as a chronicler and his literary uh, worth? Well, Chips would have been a brilliant journalist. If I edited a newspaper in the 1920s or 30s and had any inkling of his observational skills, I'd have hired him. Uh, I mean, he would be a better journalist than some of those people, like Tom Dryberg, who was a diarist on the, uh, on the Express in the 1930s and who you know, went off to become a, a Labour MP. He's got that... He's got an incredibly acute sense of observation. Uh, and he is hungry for experience. And that it's, it's, his hunger for experience is because he wants to record it, he wants to write it down. I can't work out when he decides that these diaries are for publication. He more or less says towards the end of volume one that he's decided he'll possibly publish them. I mean, this is when he's been keeping a diary on and off for 20 years. Um, I, think there's, I think probably subconsciously he always thought that he'd keep them for publication. Um, but he is, uh, he has a very good writing style. He's naturally concise. He, I don't think from having read his original manuscripts that he went back and revised himself very much. I see no evidence of that. I think it, they're, they're very spontaneous. But he was an enormously well-read man. I mean, a lot of the reviews of the first edition 
there are people getting sniffy about him and saying, oh, he's not very well educated, he's American, he hasn't read anything. Not true at all, he read absolutely everything. But, you know, his, the allusions to both English and American authors, and indeed French authors, he's read an awful lot of French literature, abound during this, this volume. Um, and he's also a great connoisseur of art. Uh, he, there are constant allusions to uh, paintings. He'll compare people or their children to, you know, great portrait painters. He'll talk about landscapes in terms of, of, uh, of landscape painters. Um, and he's got, he's got a great aesthetic sensibility. And he brings that aesthetic sensibility, that sense of meticulous observation into everything he writes. And his prose is, is almost self-polished, I think. Um, and he is a perfectionist. And I think he's aware that he's got to keep a diary in a way that befits a man of what he considers has become his position in London society. And so it is, uh, it is quite clipped, it's quite elegantly written. And, um, but above all, he is very, very candid. Um, I think most people keeping a diary today, if there are still people who keep diaries, would probably be uh, no more candid about aspects of their private life than he is. And certainly as the diaries go on, as he gets older, he becomes more and more candid. And then this is one of the reasons why they weren't allowed to be published for 60 years after he died. That was his request to this, you know, in his will that they weren't published for 60 years. Not just because so many people were would still be alive that he'd written about, but also I think for his family's sake, he wanted to put distance between his own opinions and them. Mm. And you know, probably 60 years was just about, uh, just about enough. It, it is a who's who of the British aristocracy, this, or what Trips calls uh, Le Beau Monde, um, and, and high society at this time. And you have done an, uh, an amazing job of, uh, providing a footnote for every single person who appears. That must be the mo- which, which, every single duchess, every single MP, every uh, baronet, it goes on and on. This must be an absolutely enormous task. Can you tell us how you did this? Because a lot of these people won't have Wikipedia entries or anything like this. How, how, how did you, did you have a help <laughs> researcher? How, how did you write all of these um, uh, footnotes at a time when you're also writing books and being a newspaper columnist? Well, um, yes, I continue to be a newspaper columnist because I have to pay the bills. Uh, and I'm also a university teacher now, so I have to do that. Um, I was greatly helped by lockdown. <laughs> lockdown suddenly cleared um, you know, most of, most of last year and uh, gave me a great deal of time that I wasn't expecting to have to do this. I wasn't expecting to finish the whole project until about this summer. And I finished it, um, well, I, I, I delivered the last volume at the end of September, and then had to deal with um, the proofs of volume one during the winter. But um, uh, I was helped by the fact that uh, events took over. Um, I used uh, the internet, I used Wikipedia. I have a lot of reference books here. I have a big library of political books. So if there were really obscure politicians about whom even Wikipedia didn't have very much, I could look them up. Um, For people who didn't have any sort of entry, uh, I went to the ancestry.co.uk website 
and I track them down. I mean, sometimes it would take me half a day, not very often, I'm glad to say. Um, and by a process of elimination, we will have the same name as somebody else. I'd work it out. The, the, the only help I had, and it was a tremendous help, was my dear friend Hugo Vickers, who is one of the great um, historians of uh, royalty and aristocracy in the 20th century. And um, I got permission from the trustees for Hugo to read everything that I'd edited. And he was utterly brilliant at finding mistakes. I'd confused some Lady Jane this, that, or other with another Lady Jane this, that, or other, or got some duchesses mixed up occasionally. And he was brilliant at finding that out. And he was, uh, he was my, well, I wouldn't dream of describing him as my research assistant, but he was my um, consultant, my go-to man if I had any problems. Uh, and I couldn't find um, you know, various obscure European royalties. But if you've got access to who's who's, if you've got access to the Almanac de Gotha, uh, if you've got Wikipedia, if you've got the internet, it's amazing who you can find. And um, it's amazing. I mean, the thing I thought was going to be most difficult, actually, was when Channon goes to America in 1924-25. And um, there's an awful lot of well-to-do Chicagoans that he meets who are friends of his family. And I thought, my God, I'm never going to find out who these people were. But actually, you type them into the internet and they pop up. Um, many of them have got uh, family tree websites. They've got... Uh, find a grave entries um and i just stuck at it i mean there are one or two people in the whole three volumes who defeated me i mean trying to find out who a certain underhouse parliament was in the, you know, the duke of Buccleuch's house is, is not always very straightforward but um almost everybody else you can you can discover who they are and um uh, i mean how one would have done this without the internet i just don't know uh, i mean robert's to be you know, fair to Robert, didn't need to do as many footnotes as I did because so many of the people Robert uh, had in his edition uh, 53 years ago, 54 years ago, were people who were still well known to the public. Many of them were still alive. Um, that's obviously not the case now, and I did have to do many more footnotes. In, the first, in this volume, I think there's 100,000 words of footnotes and 350,000 words of text. But I, I, what I didn't want to be in a position of doing was... Um, editing a volume of diaries and then somebody happened to come along and do it again 20 years later because I hadn't done it properly. So I, just out of self-respect, I made a point of doing it properly. But I was greatly helped by the fact that you can type the name of an obscure American into Google and it will eventually, if you persist, it will offer you the right one um, and give you his or her dates of birth and death. And uh, so that's largely how I did it. Well, I, we're all enormously grateful uh, for you for doing it. Um, I don't know whether this is going to be able to be seen uh, on the uh, podcast, but I'm holding up the uh, volume here, which I read with enormous excitement. It's, uh, it's, very, it's large, but it f flows extremely freely. Uh, Chips is always uh, talented in, his, in penmanship. He may not always... Um, delight you he may repulse you at times at others you may think how wonderfully endearing always honest um and i think that there probably isn't a first-hand diary of 
British life in uh, in particularly the 1920s, this is what was not at all included in the Robert Rose James edition, yeah. is, is all these diaries from the 1920s and these friendships with some very important people like Lord Curzon um, is completely fascinating. I could not recommend it uh, more highly for uh, people to read. Um, well, Simon, well, Simon, thank you very, very much for talking to us. And I hope that um, we can have another conversation when um, volume two comes out. Can you give us a, 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 a tiny um, uh, flavour of what to expect in volume two? Well, of course, in volume two, which runs from uh, October 1938 to the fall of Mussolini in July 1943, um, we see ships going to war, uh, which he does as Brad Butler's PPS. Uh, he's fired from the government in 1941 uh, just because he's done three years isn't going to go any further. Um, but um, he, his private life develops rather rapidly in um, the second volume. His marriage breaks up. He meets Peter Coates. They become very close. Uh, although Coates is a, an officer in the Territorial Army, he's called up even before the war uh, is declared. And um, he spends part of the war in North Africa as, um, as General uh, Wavell's um, uh, aide-de-camp. And then he goes, when Wavell becomes viceroy and gets a peerage, he goes with Wavell to India and uh, becomes the viceroy's chief of staff. So it's a difficult time for Channon because his wife has left him and he's got very strong feelings for a man who, who is several thousand miles away. And there's a war going on. Uh, so, uh, I mean, they are... Technicolor Diaries, a brilliant picture of London's social life during the war and how it can, how it managed to continue. Um, and I, mean, I can say this because I didn't write these diaries. This is, a, I think, a really great volume, but they get better and better because they get more candid. He becomes less inhibited. He's not very inhibited in this, but he comes less, becomes less inhibited as he gets older. Well, that's certainly something to look forward to. One, one of the possible... Uh, special values of this first volume, I suppose, is that it Chips, uh, very happily for historians and people who want to know about the period, Chips is on the right side of events during this, whereas he becomes, uh, his, his career socially and politically is on a slight downward tra trajectory thereafter. He's on the right side in the sense that he is uh, for the Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson, so he's got a very close side to them. He's on Neville Chamberlain's side, so he's very close to the government, so you get a sense that after the Churchill uh, change of government and uh, war, wartime must have uh, curtailed uh, socialising to a certain extent, I, I guess he's, he's less at the centre of events. But this first volume, he is absolutely um, the, the man to, to chronicle what is happening in both politics and society. Yes, he is indeed. And yes, of course, his political career does decline after that. But his social career actually doesn't and becomes more interesting. And um, the, the, I, I can't give too much away, but certainly by the time of volume three, he is living a much broader social life uh, and private life um, than he is in the early ones. He's still meeting all these very glamorous people, but he starts to meet a slightly different sort of glamorous person. But um, uh, you'll have to wait and see that when it comes out next year. We can't wait. Simon Heffer, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you so much, Tim. This is Johnny again, and I would like to thank Simon Heffer and Tim Bouverie very much for their kindness in putting themselves at our disposal for this podcast. 
It only remains for me to tell you that Tim's Appeasing Hitler is still available in hardback at £20 or in paperback now at £9.99, while the first volume of Chips Channon's Diaries are available now at £35. And Simon has been kind enough to sign book plates for us, so let us know quickly if you want one of these. Thank you for listening. <laughs>